Is there any reason to think spending a lot more money on national security is actually getting us more national security? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. No question, national security is important. As we all know, our Congress consistently prioritizes spending our tax dollars on national defense well above any other expenditure. They see it as by far the most important priority. And of course, we all want to feel safe and secure at home. And on top of that, we often hear conservatives insist that government should be run like a business. Now, whether or not you share that sentiment, the simple fact is any business knows that if they intend to prosper and thrive, it must invest wisely and prudently. Wasting money does no one any good. Well, except maybe those amoral weapons contractors that gleefully rake in any wasted money. In terms of national security, it makes no sense for spending decisions to be made by those who stand to profit by reaping billions, sometimes hundreds of billions, without regard to the crucial goal of actually enhancing national security. But as our guest today writes, that's precisely what's happening. Julia Gledhill writes on Tom Dispatch, members of Congress routinely favor major weapons makers over the needs of taxpayers and military personnel. So basically, the people that stand to profit have become the ones calling the shots with our money. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Julia Gledhill. She's an analyst in the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. She works to hold the Department of Defense accountable for waste, corruption, and abuse of power. Boy, that's a big job, quite a hill to climb. No small task. On Capitol Hill, Julia advocates for more effective national security policy at lower cost. Her article entitled Merger Mania in the Military-Industrial Complex, Tackling Pentagon Waste Means Battling the Big Weapons Makers and Asking More of Congress. That's in uh, Tom Dispatch, and it's co-written with Bill Harting, who's been a frequent guest on Keeping Democracy Alive. Harting is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, where his work focuses also on the arms industry and the U.S. military budget. Well, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Julia Gledhill. Thank you for having me. Well, it was in 1961, and yes, I was around, when outgoing Republican President uh, Eisenhower uh, talked about the growing insidious power of what he then for the first time called the military-industrial complex. Now, over 60 years later, it has not only grown, but morphed and become even more powerful as the military-industrial congressional complex. Julia, is that the case now that the weapon system contractors are finding that they can't really ask for too much money? That Congress now routinely shells out more taxpayer dollars than even they, the, the Pentagon asks for? Please talk about 
the dynamics involved, the political processes by which this happens. Thanks, Bert. I think that President Eisenhower was way ahead of his time in identifying this dynamic um, that continues to this day and has actually become just even more complex and even more powerful as this military industrial congressional complex that you describe. Um, and to answer your question, I think the, tr- the sky truly is the limit for the military industrial complex, um, especially in this given moment with, you know, high consumer inflation and a war in Europe. Um, the defense industry is really taking advantage of this particular moment to continue lobbying for a higher defense budget. Of course, they always have their reasons. Mm. There will always be a new big bad enemy for the defense industry to, uh, you know, fear monger the American people and Congress into believing that more money equals more security. Um, But what's really interesting, I think, at this particular moment is that, you know, the defense industry actually spent less on lobbying Congress in 2022, uh, according to Open Open Secrets, which is a group that tracks uh, campaign finance and lobbying. And one reason they spent less uh, on lobbying in 2022 is just, you know, the war in Ukraine, high demand for weapons, um, as well as the defense industry claiming, you know, pretty significant inflationary impacts on the supply chain, on their subcontractors. Of course, we have not seen evidence to support those claims. Um, But, you know, talking more about kind of the political dynamics involved with the industry so successfully lobbying Congress for higher and higher defense top lines every year. I mean, I think there's a few reasons they're they're so successful. Um, but arguably the two most tangible ones in my mind are vested interests uh, with members of Congress as well as the revolving door. Um, mm-hmm. So the vested interests piece, I think, is pretty straightforward. I think, um, you know, most people are aware, you know, members of Congress are not banned from owning and trading stocks uh, in even in industries that they are tasked with overseeing. So, um, you know, I think a little over a year ago, uh, there was there was a big report um, in the news uh I want to say it was the Washington Post um, exposing, you know, there are 15 lawmakers on key national security committees that uh, had owned or traded stocks in the defense companies, again, that they are tasked with overseeing. Um, So, you know, we have members of Congress trading stocks. We have members of Congress accepting uh, campaign Mm -hmm. funding from companies. Um, And of course, we have the defense industry lobbying Congress, uh, hitting the pavement, you know, Every single day, there are, on average, um, at least one lobbyist per member of Congress uh, in, in any given year, um, you know, lobbying for a higher top line. But but on the second piece, you know, it's like we have these vested interests. We also have a revolving door between private industry and government, which I think is something that is not unique to defense, but plays a particularly uh, poignant role in shaping national security policy. Interesting. You say that they, the, the military-industrial complex spent less on lobbying in 2022. I suppose, I mean, lobbyists get paid a lot of money, and a member of Congress uh, <laughs> will work for less. And if they already own the members of Congress, what the heck? Why even bother if they're already there? Uh, you could get uh, just as much done and not have to pay as much. They do watch their uh, zillions of dollars, I suppose. I mean, it's all going to them. 
as you say, it's early in the new Congress. We're just, you know, fairly early on in 2023. And you say lawmakers are already hotly debating spending and debt levels. You know, talk about the debt. And though, though the Republicans now deny it, they're, they're on record considering cuts to entitlements like Social Security and Medicare. They are on record. There's, you say there's so many obstacles to pursuing such a common-sense agenda, like cutting waste in this uh, just huge, huge budget. If it's so common-sense, what are these obstacles, and why are they there? Yeah, I mean, I talked a little bit about the vested interests that lawmakers have in, you know, maintaining the status quo on national security policy and on the Pentagon budget. But what I didn't mention is the role the jobs card plays in all of this. So Uh as as you know, um, you know, there are a number of caucuses in Congress dedicated to the intercontinental ballistic missile, to the F-35 fighter jet, to specific weapon systems um, that many states, you know, uh, are involved in. I think that, I think the F-35, the last estimate, um, I saw, there are F-35 operations happening in like over 40 states. Um, so I think that that's one major obstacle to lawmakers pursuing a common sense agenda of, you know, cutting legacy systems that are wasteful and that aren't actually providing any capability to the military, um, because there is just this ingrained, um, you know, economic presence of companies like Lockheed Martin, for example, who manufactures the, the F-35. And that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about amongst other things is the concentration of, uh, of weapons manufacturers, the uh, merger mania in the military-industrial complex. And I'm kind of a history buff, as a lot of people know who listen to this regularly. The Great Depression of the 30s only really ended, and and this is, there's been debate, but not so much. It, It really only ended with the massive spending needed to fight World War II. It was the spending. Jobs were created. A lot of jobs were created. As you write, when the Pentagon budget is threatened with even modest reductions, they routinely trot out tired arguments about how such enormous sums, and we're talking about, what, close to $900 billion for fiscal 2023, uh, such enormous sums create jobs, jobs, and more jobs. What about that? What is the reality? You've touched on that a bit. I'm so glad you asked, Bert. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. And, you know, I write in the piece, look, the facts, the data show that education and healthcare generate far more jobs than defense. Like, but that is not actually as influential on members of Congress as, um, you know, one would hope reality is. Uh, But, but the reason that this is one of my favorite things to talk about is is because you're absolutely right. I mean, after World War II, um, military spending kind of brought us in this new age of just uh, ever-expanding military budgets. Um, and, and the reality is, like, even with the New Deal, there were still disgruntled union workers without jobs, and, and military spending really addressed that issue and I think actually put us on this path as, you know, a country to developing this, this sort of shared... Uh, consensus that military spending is in fact 
not just good for the economy, but good for people. Um, and not to get too econ on here, but, you know, this is literally what Keynes said. Keynes is an economist who you know, believes that uh, demand really drives supply. And I think that that rings true in defense spending, right? This idea of military Keynesianism is that military spending is always good for people and for the economy. But that is less and less true as more and more of the defense budget goes toward weapons uh, research and development as well as procurement. It is not for the people. And so this uh, the idea that we're hanging on to that perspective on military spending that we really, um, I think, it blossomed out of uh, uh, World War II spending is just it's it's antiquated and it's it's not right and we see that um, in how military service members are actually treated. I mean, I think it's one in five military families are food insecure. So it's it's something that you know it's a really big problem. And I think the American consciousness is like thinking about the role of military spending in our country and sort of what it means for us and for what security even means. So many points to talk about there. It kills me when I watch TV and there's groups like Wounded Warriors uh, begging on TV for all these people who have given so much and have to beg and have to beg for decent medical treatment. What the heck? I, it just, here we are spending all this money and these these poor people who have given so much still have to beg? I mean, isn't this part of the military? And another thing you talk about there is, you know, what do, what, what do we get for our money? Oftentimes, these weapon systems don't do anything. They gather dust on a shelf. They make big profits for the the, uh, the big companies, uh, Raytheon, etc. But what do they actually do? And well, talk about that, if you would, a little, please. I mean, like, what about the actual effect of spending this money? I mean, we're, you know, we're building these, these weapon systems and creating jobs that they carefully uh, spread out all across the country, their assembly points, et cetera, little components and everything. But, but what about, you know, is it, do we get more security for, for building these weapon systems that may not, that hopefully don't even do anything? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And I, I think it's something that uh, is not talked about as much in the defense budget conversations just because, you know, it is such a huge budget. It's really hard to kind of disaggregate and think yeah. through, like, where is this money actually going? What is it doing for the people? Um, and I write in the piece, you know, like we've already established, education, healthcare generate far more jobs than defense, right? Like, we know that. Um, and, and the defense jobs that that are, you know, uh, in place to produce programs like the F-35, um, you know, that program is 20 years old and the Defense Department hasn't even given the official green light for full rate production, right? But but we've already spent nearly $200 billion on that program. So not to be too reductionist, but I think, you know, in the grand scheme of things, um, our procurement funding is, it's not doing a whole lot for the security of Americans, especially because, there is such significant financial mismanagement at the Pentagon that when we're throwing more money at it, it's only doing a poorer job actually producing the equipment and weapons um, that, you know, service members may need in the future, emphasis on may. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of a general question to get at, but I think, you know, the, the top line is like, we can't be throwing money to produce things, new things, when we can't even meet 
the deadlines for programs already in place, right? Um, and, and that does have an impact on service members because if we're not, you know, if the F-35 isn't functioning, well, guess what? F-35 pilots are also not being trained properly. Um, so I think that that's something to think about is just that, like, uh, regardless of the weapon system, you know, that we're talking about specifically, the acquisition system at the Pentagon as a whole is mired in cost overruns and delivery delays. And we really need to focus on just improving that system and not doing new things that we may or may not actually need. And and one might think, you know, and, and common sense, I mean, it seems sort of ridiculous, I suppose, in this context to talk about anything like common sense, but throwing good money after bad, generally not a good idea. But we keep on, and if they just, you know, if they, if they don't have to uh, make any considerations for any, any reductions, then, and they just get more and more and more, why not? What the heck? And we've talked a bit about the F-35. I've never driven one, actually. I like fast cars, but I've <laughs> been an F-35. I don't know a lot about F-35s. And, you know, there's this dearth of common sense at the Pentagon, as you write, requiring crucial information about the about a program before proceeding to its development stage should be a no-brainer. Again, let me repeat that. Requiring crucial information about a program before proceeding to its development stage should be a no-brainer, one would think. Tell us, please, about the case of the F-35 and its rush to development without the necessary knowledge-based acquisition process. Tell us, please, about the F-35. How is it an example of going ahead with production without sufficient assessment of any problems and how much is being spent on this system what i, I imagine the f-35 is a real cool looking airplane that uh costs a lot of money uh and is, is a lot of fun but how much tell us about the f-35 how long has it been around and how much is being spent on this unassessed system Sure. So the F-35 program uh, started in the early 2000s. It's a little over 20 years old. Um, in its life cycle, uh, it will it's estimated to cost around $1.7 trillion, uh, almost $2 trillion, uh, which I think is wild to think about, um, given that we're over 20 years in and, you know, there's still major issues with the program. Um, but thus far, we've spent uh, almost 200 billion on the program. Um, and, and it's a great example of putting the cart ahead of the horse uh, in the acquisition sense, because, you know, as we said, the DOD did go ahead and put it into production lines before the design for the aircraft was completed and before thorough testing was completed. And this is a big problem because um, the major reason the F-35 is so expensive, and it is the most expensive acquisition program in Pentagon history, um, the reason it's so expensive is because the sustainment and like modernization costs are so high. Um, basically, there are a lot of just design flaws in the aircraft. Um, and one example of this is 
that uh, the software needed to like operate and test the F-35 is just not complete. And there's not really a timeline for when it's going to be completed. Oh, my God. After um, 20 years. OK, good. Right. After 20 years, um, you know, the engine doesn't really work. There's like major propulsion issues. Um and, you know, that's really expensive to fix. It's kind of like, you know, I think in the piece I, I made the analogy of like, would you buy a house without checking the water pressure uh, and, you know, knocking on the walls and I don't know, like doing your due diligence, right? Um, well, in the case of the F-35, it's so expensive. It's like buying a thousand houses uh, sight unseen. <laughs> and who makes the F-35 and what is it designed for? It's a bomber, I assume? So um, Lockheed Martin manufactures uh -huh. the F-35. Um, it is a fighter jet and it is supposed uh -huh. to be what is called a multi-use aircraft. And what that means is that it isn't particularly good at anything. Um, and the reason I say that is because, you know, the F-35 is supposed to be able to fly really high and fast. But it's also, according to the Air Force, supposed to be able to fly really low and slow in order to provide ground troops what's called close air support in a combat setting. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, you can imagine it's really difficult to manufacture an aircraft that's, you know, really good at both. That's really good at flying really close to the ground and providing uh, ground troops in a theoretical combat situation mm. um, the type of visibility that they need to navigate war. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we needed close air support in Vietnam. We needed it in Korea. Um, and the Air Force has actually gone out and said that the F-35 is going to replace um, a different aircraft called the A-10 Warthog, which is like the system. It is the system for close air support in the U.S. military. It's like the only aircraft that really does the job well. Um, yet the Air Force wants to mothball the A-10 in favor of the F-35 uh, to provide this close air support, despite the fact that they are not training their F-35 pilots to actually provide that close air support. Um, my colleague at POGO actually just... Uh, published an investigation revealing that. Um, and so the short answer is like, you know, it's supposed to do a lot of stuff, doesn't do anything particularly well. Um, and the reason the Air Force, you know, favors the F-35 over a legacy system that actually works like the A-10 is because it, uh, you know, it's really expensive and they get, you know, shiny new um, aircrafts instead of, you uh, uh, an aircraft like the A-10 that has demonstrated it can actually do the job for, for decades. Mm. Yeah, for, the, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, the military budget. It's hard to even call it a budget. It's just like, you know, burning money, basically, it seems to me. And our guest today is Julia Gledhill, who has co-written an article on Tom Dispatch entitled Merger Mania in the Military-Industrial Complex, Tackling Pentagon Waste means battling the big weapons makers and asking more of Congress. Well, we keep asking more of, spend more, spend more, spend more. They cannot, it's like they follow, our members of Congress, most of them, follow over themselves trying to spend more money on weapon systems. And we'll talk about not every member of Congress, right and left, we'll talk about that, but I am old enough to remember. I mean, obviously, I remembered uh, President Eisenhower in 61. I, I remember when there was the prospect of what we called a peace dividend. When our seemingly unending war in Vietnam ended, well, of course there'd be a break in this wild defense spending. 
uh, as with the end of the war in 1975, we're not at war now. How can spending still be so high? I mean, it's not all going to Ukraine. How do they justify it? It's uh, it's the million dollar question, Bert. It really is. Um, <laughs> and I said at the beginning, um, you know, there will always be a new big bad enemy that we need to protect against, according to the defense industry, um, whether it's more amorphous like the war on drugs or the war on terror um, or it's, you know, a ground war as the United States um you know, led in Vietnam or occupied Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, but how do they justify it? I mean, right now, I think uh, so-called great power competition is really the main driver of this type of threat inflation. Um, we have folks really um, uh, inflating the threat posed by China, um, particularly militarily. You know, the economic competition is a related conversation that I think is probably uh, of greater importance than than uh, the military one because, you know, China has an inherently defensive posture, and we could talk about that um, if you like. But as you say, it's, you know, um, we're spending so much money and we are not even in a ground war right now. I mean, the president's budget request last year, which Congress far exceeded, by the way, mm-hmm. was higher... It was higher than peak defense spending during the Korean and Vietnam wars, as well as the the defense buildup during Reagan's term. Um, Our budget is more than the next nine countries combined. It's more than two and a half times what China is spending. Um, And like I said before, you know, quality is more important than quantity here. Um, And I think that, you know, the American public lawmakers really need to be critical of the, the type of threat inflation that the defense industry will always do because it will always be in their interest. So it seems that it's, and, and what I find curious is the, uh, well, a lot of things I find curious. So many people feel like, well, we have to be strong. We have to be uh, strong on defense. We can't uh, have a uh, nanny state government uh, that uh, just spending on the military, being strong, being tough is just the most important thing. And yet you say spending on education and health care, investing in those things actually builds their better investments and, and creates more jobs there. What about that? Is that, I assume that that feeling like we have to be tough and strong uh, is not just something that happened recently. It's been developing over a long period of time, and it's not just coincidental. It hasn't just happened all by itself. What are your feelings about about that attitude and and any changes there? I mean, I remember, uh, again, with my memories, uh, many years ago, probably 20 so years ago, I heard a defense expert <clears throat> come to town and argue that we were spending, and this is like 20 years ago, over $65 billion a year on maintaining obsolete weapon systems. Absolutely obsolete. And $65 billion a year 20 years ago, I don't know what it would be now. Are there lawmakers, uh, lawmakers across the ideological spectrum who are genuinely interested in broader Pentagon spending cuts? I guess there's a couple questions there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, there are lawmakers across the ideological spectrum that express interest in 
cutting the Pentagon budget. And I say that very diplomatically for a reason. Um, but I'll start on kind of a more positive note, I suppose. Um, the sort of main leaders for defense spending cuts um, on the House side are Mark Pocan from Wisconsin and Barbara Lee from California. Um, progressives, they actually just introed, uh, introduced a bill to cut $100 billion from the defense budget um, while protecting for, you know, the protecting against cuts to like personnel-focused accounts, like defense health, for example. Um, and then, you know, in the Senate, I mean, Rand Paul from Kentucky is he's really known to advocate for more oversight of defense spending and has recently pushed back on Republicans, um, you know, taking defense spending off the table uh, to off the table for cuts to address um, the debt ceiling. And of course, like the defense cuts conversation ar um, around debt it has been really contentious. Um, I mean, on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, Rogers and Smith, uh, the current leaders of, of that defense committee, um, they appear to have you know, shared concern, an interest in um, cutting Pentagon waste and like these obsolete programs that you describe. But, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not holding my breath. I, I'd like to see it happen. Um, but it's actually a really interesting um really interesting topic talking about like Pentagon waste because, you know, everybody wants to get rid of waste theoretically. Um, and we hear that all the time uh, across the board. Um, but it's not just money that we're spending on obsolete systems. We're also just not accounting for um, equipment that we already have. Uh, one of my favorite um things to talk about is just like the DOD not really knowing what it has. Um, in 2019, um, the inspector general at the Pentagon, the inspector general being the internal watchdog who's supposed to investigate and expose waste, um, they they did an audit in 2019 and found errors in the Navy's um, property and inventory records. And in an effort to resolve those errors, the Navy actually found a warehouse that it just had not recorded. And inside that warehouse, there was uh, $126 million worth of spare parts for a number of aircrafts, um, including the F-14 Tomcat, which, uh, surprise, the Navy retired in 2006. Um, so wow. you know, over, over a decade later, over a decade later, uh, the, the IG forces the, the Navy to find this, this warehouse warehouse they didn't even know they had um and the navy the other parts um you know not for the f-14 uh tomcat which is retired um ended up being useful because the navy was able to fill over 20 million dollars in orders for spare parts without having to procure you know new parts so you know we're funding obsolete uh systems and we're also just not accounting for the equipment that we already have which is wild how they can call them uh, to me a conservative by its by any definition of the word is being conservative and watching uh, your your uh, dollars and cents, but uh, it doesn't seem to be the case. And adhering to conservative business practices would, of course, mean looking at and considering economic performance, especially for big spending. One would think that audits are naturally in order, but you point out that the Department of Defense failed to pass even a basic audit and that independent auditors were shut out of seeing the books. Crucial information was withheld. As you write, it's as if 
a child receiving an incomplete on an end-of-year report card somehow still gets to move ahead as if the incomplete didn't matter. You say that the entity that should be in the role of teacher, Congress, somehow still approved more than $45 billion more than the Biden administration requested. It's like members of Congress just can't spend enough money to weapon system contractors. What has Congress actually approved in defense spending for fiscal 2023. And what about, I, I know it's hard to to figure because I'm sure there are defense-related expenditures that are kind of offline. So about, what's a good guess as to what percentage of the, what, we, what do we spend and about what percentage of the total U.S. budget is that? So um, I know that last year the defense budget was about 45, uh, 46% of the total U.S. budget, and I would suspect that number is about the same this year, 45, 46-ish percent. Um, but as you say, you know, defense spending it uh, tends to find its way into multiple government agencies, not just the Department of Defense. And so I think, um, you know, when I talk to people about Pentagon spending, uh, there are a lot of numbers thrown around. Uh, for this year, for fiscal year 2023, um, the you know top line is $858 billion. Um, but if you count, for example, the supplemental, the emergency funding for Ukraine in, in you know, 2022 and 2023, that's $113 billion and over half of it went to defense. So, you know, that's an additional $62 billion on top of the top line. Um, so it's it's a, it can be a little bit amorphous. Um, you know, my co-author Bill Hartung at the Quincy Institute he wrote last year that you know the national security budget is more like 1.4 trillion. Wow! And so there's a there's a couple different ways to talk about it. There's like the Pentagon-based budget. There's the national security programs that you know the the Department of Energy, for example, to fund nuclear programs. There's some defense-related spending in the State Department, and then there's you know the supplemental funding for Ukraine, um, mm -hmm. which which does end up uh, in in defense um, more than more than half of the time. Fifty five percent of supplemental funding went to defense. So a couple different answers there. Unfortunately, it is like a little bit convoluted, but it is a it's a bunch of money. It's a bunch of money, <laughs> and and it's not unintentional. Clearly, to to confuse that. And I remember back when I was so naive, I thought the Department of Energy was actually a Department of Energy. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they make nuclear weapons. That's what they exactly. do there. And for those who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking with our guest today, Julia Gledhill. She's an analyst in, in the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight, also affectionately known as POGO one of my favorite cartoon characters. Uh, she works to hold the Department of Defense accountable for waste, corruption, and abuse of power. And she has co-written, along with uh, uh, Bill Hartung, a piece for uh, Tom Dispatch about merger mania in the military-industrial complex. Well, in terms of... There's still so much to talk about. In terms of merger mania... Um, traditionally, the U.S. has been averse to monopolies and to concentrating and centralizing, and, and we at least pay lip service to uh, the value of competition. What's going on with regard to merger mania in the military-industrial complex? Thank you for asking. Um, so, 
you kind of mentioned, you know, are there laws against monopolies? Um, yes, you know, anti antitrust law exists. However, it doesn't always encapsulate the, you know, national security concerns with an ever shrinking defense industry, right? And um, there are a couple of reasons why consolidation could impact national security. Um, the main problem is just less competition, right? Which which drives up costs and and slows innovation, um, just based on you know logic um I, I think the counter is like you know we often hear that consolidation can increase efficiencies in lower costs but frankly we just have not seen that from big contractors um and you know with less competition you're not gonna have um the same level of uh you know, interest in actually being ahead of the curve. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons that there's been such uh, an uptick in uh, mergers and acquisitions in the defense industry in recent years um, is because antitrust law just doesn't necessarily um capture those national security concerns, right? And actually five or six years ago, um, there was a Pentagon official who really pushed back on, um, on, I think it was, a what was it? Lockheed's, um, acquisition of Aerojet, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but, you know, the Pentagon was like, look, we're not going to oppose this deal, but we do think um, this could have a snowball effect. And, like, the Pentagon needs to have a bigger role in um, the review of mergers and acquisitions. But that review is led by the Department of Justice and by the Federal Trade Commission. And at the time, this Pentagon official got a lot of flack from DOJ and from FTC um, because they were like, hey, back off. Like, we're the ones who review antitrust law and we're the ones who will make the final decision as to whether companies can merge together. Um, but, you know, since that time in the past six or seven years, we've seen uh, a number a, a number of acquisitions by, by big primes gobbling up smaller companies and it just, it presents issues and, and further shrinks an industry that, you know, has been consolidating since the fall of the Soviet Union when there were, you know, over 50 aerospace um, and defense companies that shrunk to five, which, you know, continue to be the biggest contractors to this day. Wow, that's that's quite a change from 50 to five. Gosh, and they're doing uh, all right. And I got to ask once again about the definition of, of national security. Uh I mean, let's face it, people's health and safety. People want to feel that they that they have protection in their homes. And uh, there's East Palestine, Ohio right now. Uh, people's things, their, their health and safety is tremendously adversely affected by things like the chemicals released in that uh, train derailment in East Palestine. Should that not be considered as essential to national security, or is that just absurd to even put it in the category of national security? Um, I mean, I would That's definitely consider what happened in Ohio a national security concern. I mean, it is directly affecting communities, and they are not getting the resources that they need to deal with it. And, um, you know, it, it's just another failure of uh, holding, you know, corporations accountable. Mm. Um, and they have a real... Um, 
they have a real obligation to prevent those types of disasters. And I, it, it actually impacts people in a really direct way. Yeah. Um, instead of thinking about, you know, like <laughs> a China threat, for example, like I'm not sure anybody in Ohio is, is thinking about that on a daily basis. So yes, I mean, I absolutely think it's a national security concern. Um, and on the subject of like corporate uh, accountability and just like general corporate mm. power, I'm going to editorialize what I, my oh, last response um, yes. Because I think I said Lockheed and Aerojet. That's a uh, conflated two different deals. It was Lockheed's uh, acquisition of Sikorsky in 2015, ah. and the, D- the DOJ actually approved it because. Um, you know, they said that, well, Lockheed doesn't make helicopters, Sikorsky does. So we're, you know, rubber stamp, but uh, just wanted to make sure I got that, got that uh-huh. correct. So uh, many, so many to consider. Uh, I remember Sikorsky and I remember their helicopters. Uh, yeah, I, uh, Vietnam, <laughs> there were a lot of them there. Um, and you opine that, quote, Congress needs to cut the Pentagon budget dramatically. It's not only outrageously oversized, but some parts of it are genuinely dangerous. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, look, like, you don't need to be a nuclear expert to see that the United States has more nuclear weapons than any country could possibly need to deter another from attacking, right? Um, I mean, like, we, we could this this idea of deterrence like we could dissuade any country from an atomic attack with much fewer weapons than we currently have in our arsenal um and I, there's just simply no need for us to modernize to the extent that we are now mm. um and we talk a little bit about the intercontinental ballistic missile in the piece um and, and the top line is just like it adds nothing to our deterrent capability um and it is really dangerous because they're kept on a hair trigger trigger alert um, and they just risk, they increase the risk of unintentional nuclear war in a really, really scary way. Hmm. Uh, once again, you keep triggering my memories. Uh, how I, uh, Dr. Strangelove, how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. Yeah. Excellent movie. Excellent uh, movie. It's a great movie. It can, it, 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 it still fits. Um, and <clears throat> as you note, there are reforms that could quickly improve the situation. What are some of those reforms? Sure. So I talk a little bit about, um, you know, knowledge-based acquisition in the piece and just like doing due diligence before we pour money into weapon systems. Um, I, because we've already talked talked about that, I'll, I think I'll talk a little bit about sort of the revolving door reforms that could actually uh, um, yes. prevent the situations that we find ourselves in, which are that, you know, lawmakers are just plussing up the Pentagon budget far beyond what the president and even the Pentagon asked for, much to the delight of the defense industry. Um, You know, as I said, there is just this uh, uh, sort of circle, a vicious cycle of people moving between government and private industry. And there are a few ways um, to kind of slow that revolving door, which is to just extend the lobbying cooling off period um, for, uh, you know, members, uh, People who leave the Pentagon, for example, and then go work for private industry. It's currently two years. Um, Pogo advocates for a four-year cooling-off period just so, like, you're not moving from the Pentagon and then you still have friends in the Pentagon. You go work for Raytheon and you're uh, using your personal, professional government connections to just, like, win money for, again, a huge corporation that makes weapons that, uh, you know, 
kill people. Um, and, and, and another thing that um, Pogo advocates for is, is sort of strengthening the refusal requirements for people in the Pentagon who yeah. maybe do have previous corporate experience with Raytheon, right? So we need to strengthen the requirements for those types of officials to recuse themselves from uh, deals involving, again, former colleagues this time in, in the private industry. And I don't talk about that a lot in the piece, but it's something that I, is a main focus for, for Pogo and sort of uh, actually chipping away at the system that produces such high military spending that wastes so many taxpayer dollars on you know systems that often don't work. And if there could be more input, and I do believe the founders of this country intended Congress to uh, be the ones to declare war, uh, and, uh, and and there to be a little bit of democratic process in there. But the picture that you draw, uh, that you paint, it, it reminds me of a, uh, I get a picture of a turnstile, you know, of people going in and out of the Pentagon and out of the uh, the corporations that, that stand to profit from that. Well, right now, China is, you know, seen as the big bad guy. It's, I think, is one thing to compete, just my personal opinion. It's another to you know, have that as a potential uh, enemy. And the Philippines uh, has long been well, basically a, a colony of the U.S. ever since the uh, so-called Spanish-American War of 1898. And, and they stand, I don't know who they is really in, in, uh, in the Philippines, but there's going to be a lot more military expenditure and focus on the Philippines there. What, what about competition with China, economic competition versus, you know, having them as a as a military adversary and protecting uh, Taiwan. Are there alternatives there to uh, to treating China as as the, uh, you know, the big bad monster? I mean, they're they're I don't I don't feel great uh, enthusiasm for the current Chinese government. That's for sure. Your your thoughts on that, uh, Julia? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, so at the Project on Government Oversight, we don't necessarily take foreign policy positions. Um, mm -hmm. We do care about making our military as efficient and effective as possible, meaning that service members get what they need and that um, yeah. we're meeting national security goals and and not uh, doing anything excessive. That's wasting money and time and uh, further inhibiting the Pentagon's ability to just like function in on its most basic level like hey it'd be great if we could pass an audit but to answer your question you know um there there's so <laughs> there's so many alternatives to what we're doing on china right now i mean we have now a China Select Committee in Congress, uh, which in my opinion seems to be like a little bit duplicative. Um, I, I know that the Armed Services Committee, they've already had a hearing on China, so I'm not really sure what the focus of, what the purpose of a select committee is other than to, again, fear monger people into believing that we need to increase our budget in order to fight China. But but I think one major um, sort of takeaway for me from this whole situation is, is you know, military capabilities aside, um, maybe plussing up the defense budget, uh, inching closer and closer to a trillion dollars for the Pentagon is actually playing right into what China wants, right? Uh -huh. Like as far as economic competition, um, digging our own graves in further economic turmoil at the Pentagon may be exactly what they want, right? Because if we're going to freak out about the Navy or, um, uh, you know, China's military capabilities, um, 
in their surrounding waters. Um, are we just going to spend more money on things like the F-35 or the littoral combat ship that are sort of the most notorious acquisition disasters? The reality is that like their, their maritime capabilities are very much so uh, designed to defend themselves against an attack. Their ships can't go more than a hundred a few hundred kilometers um, outside of their borders. They are not set up um, to be on the offense. And, and they just, they do have this inherently defensive posture and ignoring mm. and digging our own economic grave into further wasteful Pentagon spending, maybe exactly what they want in terms of uh, hindering our ability to actually compete on the global stage in a more economic sense and a trade sense. That is so interesting. People have this, uh, well, the, the fear has been whipped up, and fear is it's always probably the most effective uh, political strategy to use. That they, the, the littoral, you know, going on the waters, ships that they have, and the fact, as you said, they can't go more than 100 kilometers. That's fascinating. And it's been painted up. And yes, I can just see, uh, you know, their military contractors and our military contractors, you know, a, a wink and a nod. You know, we're both making a whole bunch of money. That's what they like to do. In case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And there's not a lot of democracy in the military budget, shall we say. It's the, the, the uh, article we're discussing in Tom Dispatch is Merger Mania in the Military Industrial Complex. And our guest is Julia Gledhill, uh, who's, written, who's uh, with the uh, Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. We're talking about the military budget. And, of course, Ukraine. What are the effects of that, do you think? And it's, it is more complicated than it appears. There's no question about it. But what about the effects on the, the American attitude and the actual spending in, in Ukraine? Is there a significant effect on that? Or I mean, we don't, we're spending some on that, but not as far as a percentage of the total military budget. My impression is not a huge amount. Tell us about the Ukraine effects. Um, well, I will say, you know, we've spent um, in the aggregate more on Ukraine in the past year than we did in Afghanistan in literally 20. Wow. Um, oh. So we are spending, I mean, we are spending a lot of money um, uh, on Ukraine, transferring weapons directly to Ukraine, but also replenishing the stockpiles of weapons that we've dipped into in order to transfer weapons to Ukraine. Um, and so I think the biggest impact of, you know, the war in Ukraine on um, defense policy and on the defense industry is really that it is um, offering contractors, uh, prime contractors, the big ones, Lockheed, Raytheon, Northrop, the usual, the opportunity to um, lock in in, you know, multi-year, multi-billion dollar contracts to produce weapons related to the war in Ukraine um, in a way that is like potentially going to permanently expand production capacity for weapons in a way that, you know, in my opinion, actually sets us up to, um, you know, make weapons for uh, theoretical war with China. I mean, some of the things that oh, these wow. companies are doing... Um, aren't even for Ukraine, but because of the war in Ukraine, they're able to lock down uh -huh. this type of weapons production capacity that's actually setting the stage for a war in, in China. In some ways, you might you might consider it manifesting a war with China, which is a huge problem because with with a permanently potentially permanently expanded production capacity, um, industry is not going to let that capital sit around. Like they are going to push for 
increased weapons production in a way that will, in my opinion, further escalate tensions with with China, for example. Oh, how lovely. <laughs> oh, boy, you must love your job. Fascinating, because there, there are things that can be done. And where I live, there's the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, which refuels nuclear-powered submarines and does create a lot of jobs in maintaining the subs. And every time there's talk about cutting their budget, which there has been a few times, the congressional delegation gets really up in arms and the the community really comes together talking about saving the jobs. We all want to keep jobs, but there's no question about it. But with the country so in desperate need of updating our rail transportation system, they, they do a lot of heavy metal stuff, not the music, the actual heavy metal. Uh, train cars could be made there. It could be what's been called full-use strategic planning. What if, as you ask, Congress repurposed significant amounts of Pentagon spending for more productive endeavors? Why, oh, I mean... Why not? Go ahead. You are preaching to the choir here, Bert. (laughs) What if? I mean, can you imagine how amazing that would be for the for the American for for the American people for taxpayers? I mean, like again, uh, I said this earlier. Military spending is increasingly uh, focused on weapons and decreasingly focused on people, right? Um, And that means that uh, it's doing less and less for the people on top of producing goods and services that serve absolutely zero purpose to the average person. So, I mean, obviously, you know, like we could be doing more productive things with this money. Um, and, and by, by that, I mean, of course, you know, we have this, we have data showing that of course we need um, better infrastructure, yes. education, healthcare are going to generate more jobs, of course, but a lower defense budget would also be good for defense too. Like, I think we would be better at acquiring weapons if we lowered the budget. Um, But to answer your question, like, what's the situation? Why is this not happening? As you say, um, you know, in your district, obviously, like, these vested interests run super deep, run super deep. I mean, last year, um, uh, Representative Jared Golden, he's a Democrat, he was kind of the lead on the um, House proposal to add $37 billion to the president's request. Congress ended up adding $45 uh, more than that. Um, but, you know, like he made sure that that plus up included funds for the a $2 billion guided missile destroyer to be built at the General Dynamics shipyard in Bath, Maine, uh-huh. in, in uh, his district. Um, Rogers is another great example. He, um, you know, he's the uh, leader on the House Armed Services Committee, key, key defense committee, um, and very um, huge advocate of increasing the Pentagon budget. Um, of course, he serves um, the district just adjacent to um, Huntsville, Alabama, which is known as Rocket City because it's home to so many firms that work on missile defense and related projects. So, um, you know, the, the vested interest run deep um, is is basically my short answer. And unfortunately, uh, profitability continues to uh, continues to reign supreme. You know, there are other answers, and somehow the other voices just are very reluctant and skittish about coming out. I, I, I have a hard time figuring out why, because we need an infrastructure improvement that could create a heck of a lot more jobs and build what I consider real national security. You suggest that reducing the political clout of the major weapons uh, makers would do more than just save billions of tax dollars. 
that it also might lead to public consideration of the very concept of defense. What do you mean by that? What is, uh, why is it needed and where do you see that going? Yeah, thank you for asking. So, I mean, by reducing political clout of major weapons makers, I am talking about, you know, banning congressional stock trading, uh, instituting revolving door, uh, revolving door reforms that are going to sort of chip away at the influence that the industry has on Congress. And the reason I think that's important um, is because without that power, um, their uh, their microphone is, you know, turned off, right? It's, it's lower. Um, they are not this strongest and uh, best funded voices on what we need for national security. Um, and, and thinking about this concept of defense, um, you know, like I said, and we've discussed since World War II, um, military spending has been perceived as like this really important factor in economic health and well-being of our of taxpayers and of people. Um, and as I've said many times um, this morning, that is less and less true. So by reducing the political clout of major weapons makers, like we can actually open a more deliberative and independent mm. uh, process in Congress around what defense means and like what our return on, on investment actually is when we spend money on defense. Self-government, what a concept to actually deliberate on it and be able to look at it and consider what it could be and having the capability for the people to decide and not the uh, those who profit from it. Fascinating. If people want to look more at, at your work, uh, there must be some uh, internet contact, the Center for Defense Information or POGO. What can you suggest? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you can always look me up on POGO's website. Um, I write externally as well, and I've written about a lot of these topics, including consolidation and a few other outlets. Um, follow me on Twitter, at Julia Gledhill. Um, and thank you for the opportunity to chat this morning, Bert. It's been wonderful. Well, I hope we can actually do something about it. I mean... It'd be nice to have some real common sense in here and not having uh, those that stand to make a zillion well, dollars call all the shots. <laughs> <laughs> I am doing my darndest. Uh, that is for sure. It's a heavy lift. Thank you so much for being with us today, Julia Gledhill. Thank you.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.